Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 42, Insomnia, Aging, and Autoimmune Disease. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. This is uh, the Health, Lifestyle and Mindset podcast starring myself, Anthony Santa, and that other guy on the microphone. Hello. <laughs> That's Dr. Michael Smith. Uh, welcome. If this is your first time here, you're in for a treat. Uh, this is a, dis- a discussion that Michael and I have behind the microphones uh, once a week or so, uh, talking about all kinds of things that relate to health as Michael sees them uh, in an attempt to help you live a better life, I would say. That's the plan. That's the plan, yeah. Uh, Michael, um, last episode, we talked a little bit about um, chi, energy, Mm -hmm. something a little bit more, I think, uh, obscure, uh, if I can say so, compared to what we're talking about today. Yeah, I think we got a bit obscure with that one, but kind of had to. But um, it's kind of literally a bit of a groundswell right now in the world of traditional Chinese medicine, where a lot of clinicians are... Uh, and I mean this tongue-in-cheek kind of coming out of the closet saying, yeah, uh, mea culpa, that whole energy myth thing that people ran with since the 70s, we just sort of, you know, bought in, but it really doesn't make any rational sense, and there's way, way more credible ways to talk about this. And so we got into that just because that is a, a pretty big thing for people who are either offering Chinese medicine acupuncture as a service or trying to receive it. If you're caught up in an unnecessarily nerve, nervous belief system, I, I think it's a disservice to both practitioners and patients. Whereas if we can find a better way to translate these things and maybe, I don't know, risk the bigger picture view of, I don't know, life, physics, consciousness, whatever, and how that fits into health, but specifically with respect to Chinese medicine, uh, I guess just fundamentally, it's just about bringing people a sense of real, rational, scientific confidence to something that has been, unfortunately, kind of snake-oiled for the last 30, 40 years uh, with respect to how the kind of PR has come out. So, It was a pretty uh, deep conversation, I'd say. Yeah, that uh, was the longest one we've ever done. Yeah, uh, well over, I think it was an hour and a half or so. Almost two. Almost two. Almost two by the time yeah. we were done. <laughs> So uh, if this is your first time here, uh, the uh, podcasts uh, that we get into, sometimes they're shorter and sweet, uh, sometimes they're a little bit more in-depth. Uh, today's conversation around uh, insomnia and that sort of thing might not be as uh, long, but um, we don't usually script these things in any particular way. No, that, that just makes us both sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, about as organic as it gets. Yeah, I don't know. I like improv. Yeah, uh, and it, it totally works. Um, before we get, uh, before we get into things, uh, just give people a, a quick reintroduction or an introduction rather as to who you are and what do you know? Uh, so let's see, uh, as a clinician, I've been focusing primarily on the integrative medicine model, uh, by mostly combining the vast wisdom and tradition, uh, and experience of Chinese medicine, uh, with the leading edge sciences of functional medicine and what we now call ancestral nutrition or evolutionary nutrition, evolutionary medicine, which is honestly one of the, it just gives me goosebumps when I think about how absolutely sensible that is and how in 20 odd years of practicing medicine, how focusing in on that specific combination has made just, a, I don't know, 
it's made my life a lot easier as a clinician because I work with pretty complicated stuff. Um, so it's nice to have something that's predictable and effective in that way. And it's super um, inspiring for patients who can look around and, you know, be in a room where 80% of the people in that room are getting better uh, with fixed name diseases. The Western medicine just has a, you know, basically a, you know, a counter of pills to take to just manage the symptoms. And I mean, those things do what they do in the short term, but uh, again, for my, my real passion with this is just seeing people get better. And I mean, that's me as a doctor, me as a patient, I have some autoimmune stuff almost killed me about 25 years ago. So, I mean, every day for me is kind of like a free ride, you know, I got the, got a free pass to come and try all this whole thing again and <laughs> yeah. do, do it, do it better. And, you know, I follow the same protocols, uh, more or less that I put my patients on and, you know, I get to be as fit and healthy at almost 50 as anybody I know, and I'm supposed to literally be dead. So pretty, pretty happy. Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you're here too. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure the people listening and watching are, uh, are interested in uh, having you, uh, share more of what you've learned along the way and, uh, things, um, as I know you, Michael, you're a researchaholic. Uh, you like to sort of dig into, uh, new ideas, uh, all the time. And I guess it's worth saying if I was to think of like bragging rights or something fancy to say is I think technically I would um, accrue or deserve the title professor of medicine now because I think I've been teaching medicine for over 20 years. Hmm. So I want to, you know, throw down the, the big, big <laughs> thump. I'm the professor. Mic drop. <laughs> mic drop. There you go. Should we drop the mic? Yeah. <laughs> Please don't drop me on my head. <laughs> there you go. There's the mic drop sound effect. Um Wow, cool, great. And uh, as far as I'm concerned with regards to this podcast, I'm somebody who's uh, followed Michael's advice uh, to great um, uh, benefit to myself. Uh, over the years, I've had my own ideas around health and nutrition, and a lot of those um, ideas that I've discovered sort of pointed me towards to whatever it is Michael's talking about. Uh, Michael and I get along like a house on fire, and uh, I actually have a soundboard and a couple of mics. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have a podcast. Ta-da! Ta-da! So um, you said something about... Uh, uh, disease, um, just a moment ago. Hmm. Um, and as far as I guess our listeners concerned, diseases of, uh, of affluence or North American standards, that sort of thing, uh, cancer, diabetes, that sort of thing. But today we're talking about sleep. Mm -hmm. So is sleep a result of a disease or is, um, sort of not sleep insomnia? Is that, is that a, um, a disease uh, as, as you would label it? Or is that something totally different? Well, I mean, if I was to get all, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, semantical or something with words, uh, I mean, the word disease means dis-ease, a lack of ease. So if you're not sleeping, your life is not easy. Mm -hmm. I know that's not all medical and technical, <laughs> so much for the professor accolade. Can we get a real doctor in here? <laughs> um, Paging Dr. Smith. So I guess in... Medical terminology, there is a distinction between what you would consider a disease as an active progressive process that has kind of a fixed outcome, and then what we would call a constellation of symptoms, which we would usually refer to more as a syndrome. Um, you could look at insomnia as a syndrome because it's part of uh, a constellation of changes in the body where the, one of the loudest dashboard lights is, I can't sleep. Um, you can have perturbations in the structure of the brain and in where a lot of your neurotransmitters are basically manufactured. So in that sense, the insomnia would be like considered the disease because 
causing the most trouble for that person, although the underlying why is perhaps something more subtle. Hmm. So I think if if I was to try and, I don't know, guess maybe where you're kind of going with that, and not that you need to be going anywhere with that, but um, I think when we look at, you know, health versus disease, you know, we're looking at... Um, I don't know, let's say an apple and then there's a bite out of it and how rotten is the bite or how big is it? Is there worms in it or whatever? And, you know, the reason I bring that up is that we have the uh, sort of subconscious awareness that happy apple, healthy person, apple with bites out of it, sick person. Hmm. Uh, And I mean, that's pretty obvious. But when you look at something um, as fundamental to human health as insomnia or as proper sleep, uh, proper diet, proper hydration, exercise, those things. A lack of any of those things for me would be like having a stool with a missing leg. Hmm. So you could call it a disease or you could call it a metabolic uh, foundational instability in which all health is tilting towards a lack of that foundation. Sure. Well, I, I guess my um, my approach in asking you that is... Um, just based on the assumption that I know from friends of mine who um, don't sleep and they don't really see that as being something um, bad for them mm-hmm. or uh, as something that's, uh, you know, your, your analogy I think rings true for me, uh, a dashboard light. They don't see that as being something um, as a result of something else. And so that's why I asked, is it mm-hmm. something that is kind of a separate thing or is it actually connected? And I mean, I, I, I guess I'm asking you a question. I already, I have a, uh, an opinion about what that actually is. I just want to know what you want to know. Yeah, I would say yes, yes, and yes. Yes, it's definitely um, something that has everything to do with illness and its progression. Although, like you're saying, it's so ubiquitous or something that we all just have once in a while that it's just, I had a good night's sleep, I had a bad night's sleep. It's different than saying, oh, I had a nice face. I had a boil in the middle of my forehead. You know, it's a little more, ah, <laughs> right. for something like that to happen. Right. So definitely yes to that. Um, yes to the idea that it's a part of a symptom complex, you know, which also makes it easier to ignore because other symptoms are probably more life-threatening or life-altering, at least at the beginning. And yes, number three, to the fact that if you have chronic insomnia enough, it is going to basically be a drain. You know, instead of a... I don't know why I like the idea of a stool with legs as a metaphor, but, you know, instead of having four legs on the stool, now you have three legs and a hose draining whatever vitality is that's in the other three legs <laughs> just under the ground. Because at a certain point, you know, it's it's one of the most erosive conditions in terms of long-term health outcome. And that's kind of the first thing is we'll probably get into is just sort of, you know, random disease by disease, the consequences of insomnia. Mm-hmm. Because I think that just sets the stage for people to appreciate how interconnected the physiology of sleep and um, tissue repair, how the neurological processes involve work, whether or not you can still function as a glandular animal without sleep is pretty good to know, I think, for most people. Uh, I also want to get into a little bit about the sleep physiology, because once you get a sense of what can go wrong, then you want to kind of look at maybe what you can do to right the ship or correct some of those things. So you need to have kind of a, a map, if you will. And that's where I think having a basic sense of sleep physiology gives you the confidence to know what to do, why, and, you know, knowing that what you're doing matters. Um, then there's this magical cultish hobby slash obsession for a lot of people 
uh, we call sleep hygiene, which is just a step-by-step uh, group of practices you can put in place to ensure that on a kind of evolutionary level, uh, you're maximizing your potential for depth and, and length of proper sleep. Yep. Uh, and then I'm going to just sort of maybe talk about some supplements that are approaches people have that uh, so far, at least in my clinical experience and my personal experience, I mean, I've had terribly mm, unpredictable sleep since I was probably a teenager. So, you know, it's... You have a lot to say about sleep. I'm familiar with the the ups and downs, yeah. if you will. Sure, <laughs> sure. Well, it, it, I think you already said it, but somewhere in there, um, are you going to actually talk about what sleep does? Like, yep. Does yeah, we're gonna, that's what I mean by sleep physiology. Mm-hmm. It just seemed more, I don't know, apropos for people to sort of start with the, all the little dashboard lights and what they mean so that people can go, oh, time to take this seriously. If any of those things are, are tangential or they connect to your life in some way, sure. well, if, if they're not, I mean, it's just nice to know, to tell your friend who's got big baggy eyes, you know, I just heard this podcast and dude, <laughs> don't drink any more caffeine. Not only are those guys good looking and funny. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> I was, I was, what are you laughing Now at? we're on video. I just <laughs> got to roll with that. <laughs> um, it, I, I think it's important for, for me anyways, to get a sort of refresher on what sleep actually is uh, and what it actually does, because that sort of validates the idea of it actually being important as opposed to something I just sort of take for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, after going for a couple of nights of not having a sleep or a crappy sleep or whatever it is, you know, I can manage and do that sort of thing. But um, uh, you and I both have a mutual friend here in town who, um, you know, in the past... 30 years, probably hasn't slept uh, more than 10 of them. Um, and that's because she's so wound up with stress and all different kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure our listeners and our viewers probably have somebody in their own mind, maybe even themselves as to who they're, uh, who they're dealing with. So, um, or, or, or who, who we're talking about. Hmm. Um, and I think it would be good for them to sort of understand what that person could be like if they actually slept better. Uh, well, we could talk about the sleep physiology first and then get into the well, consequences. Uh, I, I guess I'll leave it up to you guys to sort of decide. Where I, I'm just sort of spitballing off the top of my head here. You you, you tell me what makes sense to start. Uh, well, I think I want to go with the consequences because that's, I don't know, it's like breadcrumbs that are actually made of big glaring neon signs. Sure. You know, if you want to get something to like lead you back into the purpose of how important this is, I think all the big, there's sort of like the carrot and the stick analogy. Mm-hmm. I think throwing a bunch of sticks in the air gets people's attention instead of a, hey, you want a carrot? Then <laughs> <laughs> most people are just like, give me that carrot, dude. <laughs> but there, there might be some carrot lovers out there. You never know. You never know. This is the internet. <laughs> <laughs> it's, tw- it's 2018. <laughs> so when, when you're getting into the consequences of sleep, the first thing you need to do is assess what we call the kind of volume of sleep interference. Um, just cause it sounds fun to see things that roll off the tongue, like volume of sleep interference. <laughs> now appearing three nights a week, <laughs> volume of sleep interference. Yeah. Your nemesis. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So that's based on sort of the symptoms of your particular insomnia. So people are either going to experience difficulty falling asleep, wakeful sleep, you know, wake up at three in the morning or just fitful or just super light. And you, you know, wake up every time your cat rolls over or something like that. Um, and then there's people who, you know, have mildly, uh, interrupted sleep, but don't really complain primarily about that. They complain primarily about waking up feeling like they, they just, you know, work three extra days instead of got a night's sleep. 
so it's those are like they, they those three things make up a volume of, of how interfere how much your sleep patterns is interfering with your vitality and your just ability to be you so if you're lying in bed for hours trying to get to sleep that's a certain kind of ptsd almost you know you're just lying there in the torment of shut up or if i can just get my temperature of my pillow and my one foot out of the blanket and you know one hand in a cup of water i don't know you know there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of just 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 to get it right so that that's a really big thing and and uh when i've had that kind of sleep disturbance in my life uh it's actually the apprehension of lying in bed and not sleeping that is the most difficult thing for most people with that pattern of sleep uh, disturbance you're saying that people are nervous of not being able to sleep and that causes them not to sleep well the technical term in psychiatry for everything not just sleep, but everything is called anxiety of recurrence of affect. Once mm -hmm. you've had a bonky thing happen to you, the most pressing symptom in psychiatry is the fear it's going to come back. Right. <laughs> Which usually brings it back because you're stressing out like a, you know, yep. monkey on cocaine or something. Like, <laughs> anyway. I, th I think you could actually say you're stressing out like somebody who doesn't sleep. That's a pretty good analogy or, or too. Or that too. Good <laughs> so then you take people who have wakeful sleep. So you wake up at three in the morning and, you know, you're tossing and turning. Usually with that kind of metabolic uh, kind of insomnia, you wake up and you have the metabolism in terms of cortisol that you would around nine o'clock in the morning. So you're up at three, but you're like ready to go. Like, hmm. you know, I could write a technical paper. Let's go. You know, let's start the day so it takes like on average an hour or two for people's biochemistry to sort of shift back towards sleep drive again so that's another kind of hell with respect to the volume of disturbance because lying in bed two hours in the middle of the night you know tick 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 you know when's my alarm going to go off and then i have to run the whole day on crap sleep so i'm going to lie there for those two hours give or take naturally obsessing about how crappy today's going to be. Yeah, it's I, I call it advanced uh, miserableization. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should put that in the next the next textbook. Well, it lying there um, making oneself miserable about mm -hmm. the fact that you're going to be miserable throughout the day because you don't have any sleep. Yep. And then there's the third one which is waking up feeling tired. So when we look at the statistics and it's almost the same across the board. Uh, with respect to the harm to people. Of all three, it's about a 300%. Wow. Right? So if you have one, maybe it's a 30% you know, likelihood yet this, this could add to a <clears throat> likelihood for Alzheimer's dementia or something. But if you have all three, you're now looking at, you know, across the board of all conditions, insomnia can really impact. It's huge. Hmm. So that's sort of the first thing for, for people uh, who are listening, who have insomnia or for people who know someone who has insomnia, the, the first question, if your friends ask, like complaining about insomnia, ask them, well, is it more hard to get to sleep? Is it hard to stay asleep? Is it, you know, you wake up feeling kind of bedraggled? And um, if they say yes, 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 then, or if you're the one answering and you're saying yes, 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 then it's time to step back and say, okay, no messing around here because you're now a literally advancing whatever likelihood for illness that you have as rapidly as you can with respect to your sleep patterns. I mean, that's, it's, it's a slippery slope, literally. And so just to be clear, I mean, if somebody has a crappy sleep one night, um, as 
that's not necessarily insomnia, is it? Uh, no, but it's going to upregulate uh, what we call metabolic syndrome or insulin uh, resistance and uh, lack of sensitivity for about two or three days. Hmm, right. And, and, uh, and on that as well, insomnia is somebody who consistently doesn't sleep well. Uh, insomnia is technically one of those three or two of those three or three of those three symptoms. Right, right, okay. okay. Right. Um, so you said that was the first thing? So the first thing is just to appreciate that volume of disturbance because right. that, I mean, it's, again, you're going from, uh, I don't know if you have the three stooges, you have one of the stooges, you have a 30% likelihood for whatever we're going to talk about to be serious. If you have all three stooges, it's 300%. I mean, that's not normal math. You don't go from one plus one plus one to one times 10. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. That's a lot. It's, I think they actually call it asymptotic math, but I'd have to check. It's definitely exponential though. So uh, when you're looking at um, any of these kind of diseases we're going to look at, I'm going to just sort of touch on just sort of the underlying why. Uh, some of them are going to be a bit of a geek out, so, you know, you might want to hold on to something. Or might want to listen to this late at night when you're trying to sleep. <laughs> or, or, or or just sort of, you know, put put the kind of hum-hum in your, you know, the back of your mind for stuff that doesn't really matter to you. Mm -hmm. So, right now, the most uh, terrifying thing that has to do with insomnia is cancer. And I really don't like using that word because as soon as that goes into the airwaves, you know, you've just given... I don't know, 25% of the people who heard me see that word cancer now think, oh my God, I've had poor sleep in the past. I probably am going to die because we associate cancer with, uh, you know, inevitable death. And right. I would encourage anyone to go back a few episodes to the one we call Rethinking Cancer and take a moment and go, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm just like everybody else walking around with weird grumpy cells and it's totally mm -hmm. a fixable thing. Anyway. So people who have chronic insomnia, and this is going to be true for whatever number of examples we come up with, um, the biggest perturbation to health is that you're running on cortisol during the day, but way, way, way more to wake up and then way, way more throughout the day to stay awake. People would call your second wind, mm -hmm. right? Where you're, you know, just got to get through that big project or whatever. And humans have an amazing ability to do that. Like I've seen people you know, drag through stress for 15 years before they technically get too sick to keep going. Not that right. I think that's the ideal outcome, but quickly there's different pathways in your immune system and there's no way we could get into that through audio. And even if I had the best PowerPoint, it would take days to try and make it make sense. But um, one of the kind of toggles or switches that go back and forth in, in, general active immune system behavior is called the TH1, TH2, or TH3 pathway. So very quickly, TH1 is, uh, that pathway is specific to, for intracellular infections, viral load, things that happen usually inside of cells, obviously like cancer. Uh, TH2 is more of a rashy red irritation, you know, reaction to something, maybe like a food sensitivity or hay fever or something like that. And I'm totally generalizing the heck out of this for any clinician who's going, but, but, but. <laughs> then we have the TH3 or the, what's called the Treg pathway, which is the optimal one because it keeps your body and your immune system kind of vacillating naturally between TH1, TH2. So as long as it can kind of like check in with all of them and, and keep them all running at a, you know, normal activity, uh, your immune system would be considered, uh, you know, a, a fairly effective police force or something. 
Now, if you're under high cortisol levels for a long period of time, what happens is your Th1 pathway gets basically diminished. So the immune system of the inside of your cells is now sluggish. Hmm. And you know what? You, you would have to go through that whole podcast on cancer to get the intracellular kind of imagery of what's going on in there. Um, so we have person without sleep, they have very, very deficient Th1 pathway, intracellular immunity is sluggish, their Th2 pathway is usually going to be aggravated, so they're prone to anxiety and rashes and all the weird things that stressed out people are, you can just tell them, everyone's, you know, red and poofy and itchy and <laughs> grumpy grumpy and whatever else. And all the other dwarves. Yeah, you know, yeah, so that's going on, and then usually what happens, and this is one of the trickier things, especially with respect to cancer, is it's usually at the end of a big stressful cycle when you're finally getting your sleep back, or maybe you're finally taking some kind of medication, or the stressor is over, or you've retired from crappy job number, whatever, and then your cortisol levels start to drop, and then your Th1 pathways start to get active again. And all of a sudden, your immune system attacks all of the uh, tissue processes that are going on in a malignant cell, uh, which is complicated. Uh, but that makes the activation of the battle between the immune system and the uh, malignant cells much more dynamic, uh, often creating a bloom, you know, a rapid spread of, of what's going on. So no, my advice is not to stay stressed out and never go to sleep because, oh my God, that's a bad thing. <laughs> it's to just recognize that uh, your immune system is kind of like a pendulum and if it gets stuck in one place, uh, bad things can happen. And if it starts swinging without repairing that potential imbalance or damage, it's going to make some bad decisions. Uh, so yeah, right now it's 300%. If you have all three of those symptoms with respect to insomnia and the volume of disturbance, um, you should really, really, really be doing everything you can to keep very, very happy cells, happy livers, happy everything else. Um, and really sort of maybe, I don't know, sort of drag you to the end of the podcast, but hang out until the end of like, here's some of the supplement ideas, uh, or just, you know, run to your favorite holistic, you know, integrative medicine, functional medicine person and just say, we need to dig into why, because mm -hmm. if we don't, it's tick, 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 something troublesome is going to happen. Yeah, sure. You know, then we look at next thing is Alzheimer's. I mean, it's a literal fact that chronic insomnia will basically turn your brain from a grape into a raisin. Hmm. It will actually shrivel over time. The uh, lack of, so how do I say that? If you sleep properly, um, your brain's healthier, mm -hmm. more nourished. Yeah, so... Uh, we've done a few podcasts on the, the brain and neurology and stuff, so obviously there are people that really want to dig into your your noggin. I think we have five episodes on on the brain, but right. Um, the easiest way to look at it um, would be a person under chronic stress because of stress and obviously insomnia and not getting deep enough sleep. Um, that's going to create a change in your immune system. Not only are you going to be running on high cortisol, high insulin, because those two things work with chronic stress, uh, you're also going to have chronic inflammation inside the microglial structure of your immune system in your brain. So we have these little, we call them airbags. They're like little immune system uh, uh, components inside the brain. And if your brain gets hit like a concussion, then the microglial cells swell up to protect your brain from sloshing around getting you know, KO'd again or something like that. 
Um, but that swelling and the inflammation inside the brain isn't meant to be a long-term thing. It's meant to be, oh, I got punched in the head. I better keep my brain puffed up for a little bit just to let things settle down. Um, if that keeps going on for the long term, your brain actually will use up your neurotransmitters and other uh, fatty acids and other things inside the brain to fight off the inflammation. Mm. Right? We all know fish oil is good for your brain, and it's a great anti-inflammatory. So, you know, obvious image, you know, your chronic insomnia, your memory's going to crap. Um, you start taking fish oils, and maybe you feel a bit better. But the question is, do you recognize you're just throwing water onto the fire? I mean, it's a good idea, but until you're turning off the fire, uh, you're just throwing fish oils into a situation where it's only getting to do part of the job it wants to do because it's being just burned off as an anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. So that over time uh, will change the structure of your brain, like mechanically change it. Well, it almost sounds like your brain uh, or one's brain would get tired. It, it shrivels. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. It just sort of runs out of gas and just sort of... <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm, I just got to keep going back to the physical imagery of atrophy. Hmm. Like it weighs four and a half pounds. It weighs less than four pounds. Oh. Where did all, all that stuff go? Yeah, and what's really powerful and I think potent to, to know is within the space of three to six months, if you're on a neurological regenerative protocol uh, and you're doing something about the why, it's going to grow back. Mm -hmm. And what's weird, and this screws with the neuroanatomists all over the place, but uh, all the memories that you lost come back as soon as you have the neurological tissue to access them. Wow. Yeah, that's that's been one of the funner things to just sort of dangle out there with people going, yeah, it's funny, you know, raisin, grape, grape has, or sorry, grape turns into a raisin, raisin has, you know, 30% of the memories of the grape, you repair the brain and now you have the memories of the grape. They're just... Yeah, the, I guess the tongue-in-cheek joke is that I'm alluding to is for 50-odd years, we've been trying to locate memory in the brain, and we can't. Hmm. Yeah, that's just fascinating to think that you could reinflate your brain and your memory at yeah, the same time. It's kind of like, I don't know, turning the data on your cell phone. Oh, all of a sudden, I have access to everything again. <laughs> <laughs> or actually, I'm not sure if that works because I suck at phones. So then there's uh, autoimmune disease. So if you look at your immune system like a brain um, or you know, like the inside of a cell in the sense that it has characteristics and then over time certain stressors can change it, chronic insomnia will fundamentally make your immune system very angry and kind of stupid. Hmm. Um, I think of a lot of people that I know um, or have known in my life who are kind of angry all the time and stupid. Does that mean that they don't sleep? Um, I mean, we, we could have a medical discussion about how correlation and causation <laughs> are the same thing, but <laughs> I think we would have to take that on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. So uh, cardiovascular disease being one of the bigger ones, I mean, running on cortisol, running on high insulin, there's nothing really in the long term worse for your vascular tissue. I mean, that's, I mean... It's like the highway that makes everything work. Mm -hmm. And right now it's on fire. <laughs> um, and it's shrinking. So, yeah, that's another one. You have all three of those symptoms. It's 300% probability that you're more likely to have an actual, like, fatal, near-fatal cardiovascular incident or stroke because the entire system is that close to just breaking down. 
Mm. Wow. Uh, fertility in the sense of making babies, both for men and women, insomnia is one of the bigger factors. Uh, how insomnia changes the immune system to be more aggressive, especially for women, is a big part of uh, infertility. Um, just because if you're trying to conceive and there's foreign genetic material attaching to the wall of your uterus and your immune system is a bit of a grumpy cop and likes to shoot at people, it's going to actually attack the fetus before it actually becomes... Uh, properly implanted and you're just going to end up miscarrying and I've, I've mentioned this on the show a couple of times but that's sort of how I've, how I've found myself passively end up doing a subspecialty in fertility medicine because focusing in on uh, autoimmune disease for over 20 years we just started noticing people as they got better were suddenly getting pregnant we're like hmm Go of figure. course that makes sense but yeah. then people are like knocking on the door saying I hear you do fertility medicine and I'm like well not exactly but We'll, we'll fix the why. Mm-hmm. Uh, for men, you know, if you're not getting depth of sleep, your testosterone levels are going to plummet. Uh, present st- statistics for most men over 30 is if you have chronic insomnia, your testosterone levels, uh, testosterone levels will be of someone 10 years older than you. Wow. Which means your virility is that of someone 10 years older than you. So maybe if you're 30, you're like, meh. But if you're like, 60 suddenly things are i don't know working around 70 gulp (laughs) yeah that's um i'm sure hitting a lot of people (laughs) yeah well some that are are listening i mean i mean sex does seem to like get people's attention (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I mean testosterone has more than just to do with your sexuality of course uh well i mean for both men and women it has to do with uh your um I guess what we would call your voraciousness or how hungry you are for sex, your libido. Um, it also has to do with tissue repair, muscle growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, certain parts of your brain depend, are dependent on testosterone, more so for men, but still for women as well. Um, you know, so it's, yeah, yeah you don't, don't want, yeah. yeah, you don't want that happening. So, I mean, I think the obvious uh, kind of next things would be like depression, anxiety, uh, social anxiety disorder or more um, <clears throat> vigorous presentation of PTSD and stuff like that. Uh, again, primarily because of the inflammation and the atrophy. Uh, one that a lot of people don't connect really obviously uh, is obesity. Really? Yeah. Um, so does that mean I sleep really well? <laughs> because I'm as light as I am? <laughs> is the opposite true? Well, this is where correlation sort of comes in and says, well, maybe if that's a part of your symptom complex. You're but. listening to the Correlation Podcast starring <laughs> Anthony. So, okay, obesity. Get, uh, get back to the point so before I take you further afield. The fundamental thing about insomnia is that you're telling every deep, visceral, instinctual part of your dashboard light that you're one troubled primate. It may be infection, it may be uh, you've been kicked out of your pack, it may be, uh, you know, whatever, but you're on a deep instinctual physiological level, your body is trying to survive. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so when the body hits a certain amount of survival instinct, again, you're running on cortisol, which elevates insulin. Insulin basically, well, cortisol frees up blood sugar out of your muscles. It's a, it's called a glucocorticoid, which means something that, uh, it's a hormone that releases glucose. So once that glucose is released, that insulin goes up. So if you wake up every day on high 
cortisol, you're you have it's like you ate three bowls of breakfast cereal without breakfast cereal because you're you know your body's just ripping tissue apart to produce blood sugar because you're panicking uh, on a chemical level, right? Mm-hmm. And having that much insulin in your blood changes the way your body deals with uh, chemical energy, predisposing your body to try and force that blood sugar into triglycerides into fat. So if every day, all day, you're running on cortisol and every night, all night, you're tossing and turning because you're not sleeping, you're hitting that uh, trigger plus the deeper instinctual visceral survival trigger, which is if I'm going to eat, I better store every calorie I don't need just in case because I'm obviously a terrified, sick animal in a jungle that's got ninjas or somebody bad in there because it's messing with me a bit. Hmm. Um. Uh, on the on the idea of obesity, uh, an idea fleeted, uh, sort of floated across my mind. Um, snoring mm-hmm. and people who are obese. Um, what's the question I'm trying to ask? It's more about snoring. Um, is is snoring uh, something that actually interrupts sleep enough? Because I know a few people who are overweight um, who snore like uh, thunder, you know, bad, mm-hmm. um, but they sleep all night and they get up in the morning and they do their thing and then they, they rinse and repeat. They're, they're not bothered by other things during the day, but I'm just wondering if, if snoring is actually something that's... I think most people adapt to snoring. Okay. Well, the people snoring adapt to snoring and the person in the room with them is probably, I don't know, that, that, that's a different shooting kind of the sleep. sheep that they're counting. <laughs> the fence, you know, that, that's a different form of sleep deprivation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when it starts to move towards sleep apnea, especially with obese people, then for a similar mechanical reason that causes snoring, now you're actually dealing with, you know, potentially fatal sleep apnea. So, And I, I guess is uh, is snoring something that is that disruptive to sleep? Like I said, a lot of people adapt to just general snoring, but with sleep apnea, you stop breathing and, you know, you That's wake bad. up basically blue-lipped and bug-eyed and, oh my God, I'm going to die. And, yeah. and then I think the expression is rinse repeat because they just roll over and Hope it doesn't happen again. Yeah. It's the uh, uh, blue lips and the uh, the blue ribs from somebody elbowing them all. <laughs> right. Telling them to shut up. We should make cartoons. <laughs> and the last thing I'd bring up just to kind of complete the picture and also because it's not very obvious, the most com- one of the most common medical um, outcomes of chronic insomnia that is crucial or critical for a lot of people is car accidents and falling downstairs and oh yeah walking down the elevator shaft without noticing there's no elevator in it or <laughs> you know and or, not and not surviving like a Buster Keaton movie <laughs> but somebody just some 70 year old lady just fell down an elevator shaft in Manhattan or something because she didn't look and she was on her phone and she went wow yeah so I'm not not blaming elderly people or phones I'm just saying if you're not sleeping well you are the person who's gonna do the funny stumbling yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. I would never have put that on the list, but I guess it totally makes sense. Yeah. It's huge hmm. with, with respect to the underlying cause of many, many accidents and obviously many fatalities. So, so um, I mean, that one, I mean, when you, you talk about causes and that sort of thing, it just makes me think that if you're not getting any sleep and you're nodding off while you're driving, you should just have a nap before you do whatever it is. But I mean, that just makes me think that that's uh, napping is probably not necessarily um, a deep restorative kind of cure, is it? Uh, I would say it's a very good idea. 
but only for 20 minutes, ideally around three o'clock in the afternoon. Hmm. And that's because of whatever's going on inside the body? Well, uh, when we get into sleep physiology, which we're about ready to dive into, one thing that's very important to recognize is the balance and imbalance between what's called sleep drive and waking drive. Okay. So, um, because I'm in a Chinese medicine, the first thing that pops into mind is that little yin yang diagram with the black and white fishes and the circles and the dots. And so what's interesting about the physiology of this is that there's actually like, you could call it like a mood. Uh, a, a metabolic uh, trajectory or momentum that's moving you like forcefully 24 hours a day in the direction of sleep. Hmm. It has, you know, maybe an eight hour window where it's likely going to win, but it's like all day, every day, your entire life going, <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm going to try again. We're going to get all the chemistry together. We're going to do all this stuff and try and make sure we have the depth of sleep we need. Okay. At the very same time, 24 hours a day, there's a part of you going, okay, got to get ready because I got to wake up and be productive and not crash my car and, you know, get my, get my ancestral autoimmune diet recipes figured out or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, so it's first to appreciate that you have these two dynamic systems and although they kind of seem um, antithetical or against each other, they're not really so much against as they are kind of like a, a pendulum or a pump. Like as long as you get really good sleep drive uh, that pushes you deep into sleep, then that reflexively forces your waking drive to say, oh yeah, well, I'll do some push-ups and come right back at you with the same amount of you know metabolic force or momentum. And as long as that pendulum's sl swinging really, really well and you're going deep into sleep and you're having really you know, consistent multiple hour days of focus and, you know, humor and appreciation, then it's working. Mm -hmm. What happens for a, a lot of people, uh, especially with respect to more chronic insomnia, is we, we get really, like I had said, kind of paranoid about the sleepless night. So we want to, you know, naturally try and, how can I add more uh, to my, my sleep drive, you know, in the sense of supplements or staying in bed longer and, and things like that, or sleeping in longer just because we, we have that myth. Okay, I, I'm in bed now. I got the sleep I'm supposed to try and get. Maybe I'll just get a little bit more. And uh, I don't know if you have time to get super into the like crazy geek outside of this, but, you know, when you actually look at people with severe adrenal exhaustion, one symptom is they get the best sleep between 7 and 9 a.m. Hmm. They toss and turn all night, but if they, they can stay in bed for that extra two hours, they can gradually keep going hmm. anyway so we have these systems sleep drive and wake waking drive and they're really you know doing their best to cooperate and compete kind of like i don't know brothers giving each other i don't know what's something you put somebody in a headlock and you rub their head with your knuckles it's a noogie noogie that's the word i was looking for just and for those of you listening <laughs> you sure that's not just a weird canadian mountain expression <laughs> n-o-o-g-y is how i would spell it okay <laughs> maybe g-n yeah never know <laughs> Um, so there's lots of ways to try and improve that. And, you know, again, for sleep, most people's instinctual thing is to try and really ramp up their sleep drive. But unfortunately, what that means is now you're in bed, maybe 10, 11 hours in a 24 hour cycle, tossing and turning fitfully, trying to get some amount of sleep. And that's not a bad idea. In fact, that's a really good start. It's just not always what's going to work because, you know, you spend the rest of your day, you know, I mean, not literally, but it would be kind of cute if you could shuffling around traffic in your pajamas and your slippers going, no, it's just okay, everybody. I'm just going to go to work and just, just do my five hours and like, I'm going to 
say hi to some people and I'm going to, you know, curl up and like get back home and stay in my little napping place. And then uh, you'll never get any good sleep doing that. You'll, you'll go crazy because hmm. you're not working on the yin and yang or the, you're only going to have as good sleep as you have waking and vice versa. And this, this is where it gets confusing because, you know, you wake up in the morning, you've had bad sleep, you know, the first reflex with respect to getting your waking drive going is, well, let's try caffeine. And small amount, maybe like something like matcha might be a good idea because it's such a gradual release of caffeine. But the ones that slam you upside the head and then leave you, I don't know, worn and jangled something <laughs> on the street corner two hours later. There's no idea what happened to you. Um, that's just not a really good way to affect sleep drive because it's the perturbation is too... Uh, accelerated. It's too high, too low, too high, too low. Uh, the mistake some people make is they'll have a coffee or like at 9 and 11 and then, you know, 3 p.m. they're like, okay, I'm feeling tired. Maybe they'll have more coffee and some sugar and some, you know, crappy starchy stuff. Uh, again, just propagating that whole imbalance between sleeping drive and waking drive because you're, you're messing with it chemically in, in some ways that aren't in the long term really going to help you out. So that's sort of the first thing to just appreciate that um, you're constantly going between these two systems and in order to improve either of them, you have to really try and improve both, mm -hmm. right? So once you're effectively asleep, um, you're going to go through what are called the five stages of sleep. So the first four are basically like, um, I just imagine like going down... I don't know, maybe in an elevator, you know, you drop down to this basement and then this sub-basement and then this really deep basement and then now you're down there with the president and his friends just in case of a nuclear war in the real basement. All right, because we, we have to just keep... I watch too many action movies, sorry. <laughs> um, it's a sequential drop, right? right? And that sequential drop is an instinctually driven thing because for millions of years, you know, as prey more than predators you know, we would naturally kind of like drift into sleep and then kind of like slow it down and go, hold on just a minute. Look both ways before crossing the sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and then walk into the next stage of sleep. And then, you know, you get a little twitchy, a little fidgety, and then you start to like really kind of like go in and out of conscious wakefulness. And then your body pauses there and sort of then looks both ways across the street or the sleep and says, is it good to keep going no alligators <laughs> no tigers and then we can enter into the next stage of sleep and those four stages uh, happen and then when you get into deep four, stage four sleep for 10 20 30 minutes uh that's truly the most essential component of sleep is that stage three to four when your brain is literally allowed to finally flush its toilet mm -hmm. which is the only time in a 24-hour period it gets to do that is in that deep restorative sleep Right, And then once you have that few minutes of restorative sleep, then you bounce up into what's called REM sleep, where your brain is doing all this really interesting work with neural pathways and what we call uh, scissoring or forgetting, which is an interesting, a, a big function of sleep is forgetting all the crap you did that day that you didn't need to remember for the rest of your evolutionary life or instinctual potential, right? Mm -hmm. um, having said that, sleep also lets you remember the stuff that you really do want to remember, like, you know, how to not hit your neighbor's car the third time you drive out of your driveway in the winter or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> then eventually, you, you know, those reflexes have to be burned in, right? So then we hit that REM sleep where you're basically lying there paralyzed with your, you know, eyes twitching. Uh, and then that relaxes out 
and then you go back into stage one and then two, three, four, and so then REM, and then... The the word I know for that is a sleep cycle. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if um, if my sleep cycle, say, is so long, does that mean it's the same for everybody else? Do we all have the same sort of uh, way in and out of those five different stages? Uh, no, that's a really good question, though. So your kind of average is about 90 to 120 minutes and to go through the whole thing. So I ask that because... Um, if I nap during the day, um, it's 40 minutes. If it's longer than that, um, I feel like a bag of dirt. Yeah, it, that's the difference between napping and sleeping. Right. If you actually allow yourself to go into actual sleep, you have now effectively told your body you have gone through one diurnal cycle. So you wake up with the assumption after a sleep, not a nap, even if it's four in the afternoon, that it's tomorrow. Right. Yeah, well, and... and um, if I do it for any less than 40 minutes, um, I don't really sleep or I don't really get any kind of uh, restful benefit from it. Oh, uh, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> hmm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you are looking for some nap strategies, we could do a special episode, but um, ideally you're going to lie down horizontal on your back or side, but back preferably with something over your eyes so that it's dark and preferably something cool so that you're temperature of your head can drop because your body temperature has to drop about two degrees for you to actually be able to rest. Mm -hmm. And the objective of napping is not to sleep. It's to go into what's called a hypnagogic state where you're just sort of daydreaming and twitching and, you know, but you would have to have like no music, no cell phone, no YouTube, no whatever, because you can't be engaged in anything and nap. Right. Right. So if we've got this idea that there's sleep drive, like yin and yang, it's got to come in there and and balance those out. There's lots you can do to improve either one. And I'll get into some opportunities in a sec. Uh, next thing to be aware of is you really want to make sure you're ensuring depth of all five stages of sleep. Um, that can take some fiddling around, but at least if you're getting one or two or three cycles of deep sleep, your, your statistical medical outcomes are way, way, way better than if you're only getting one or actually none completely. And that's where, I don't know, things like, serious rapid advancing psychiatric things post-concussive syndrome uh, a few other neurological inflammatory conditions that's where the rubber really hits the road is at a certain point you do not get into stage four sleep and then your brain is basically septic it just sits there trying to do what's called glymphatic cleansing or the brain kind of flushes its toilet into the peripheral lymphatic tissue around the brain uh, imagine not being able to use the toilet for four or five days it's gonna be messy mm-hmm that's where the word uh, shithead comes from, I suppose, right? Uh, we're not allowed to use the big words on the podcast, as <laughs> far as I know. But <laughs> That's just one. One, yeah. <laughs> if, the, if, it's, if the president can use it. Yeah, right. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Uh, okay. So Let's there's other therapeutic things like uh, craniosacral therapy. Um, yeah, lots of, uh, I don't know, acupuncture, other things that can really just help reestablish that proper... Uh, stage four sleep glymphatic cleansing. And I mean, that's literally so essential that, you know, there, there should be posters everywhere. So one thing that gets tricky for people when they realize that they may not be getting uh, deep, deep restorative sleep consistently enough and they, they want to improve their sleep, the first thing you need to do is basically recognize that people have chronotypes or, or sort of where we're, we, we 
different people are different, uh, have a different sleep style. I, I mean, for a lot of my life, I went to bed at 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I would get up at 6, 30 in the morning every day and did that for God, a couple of decades, mm-hmm. just in the sense of athletics and training and teaching and wanting to have, you know, a little time to myself in the evenings. Um, so I'm familiar with, you know, that, that kind of, uh, what do we call kind of a, a brief cycle and stuff. And that's what people would typically call your night owl, right? Somebody who would prefer to stay up and stay up late and then sleep in if they can. Sure. Um, some night owls will stay up late just cause they wanna, and they'll get up early cause they gotta. Right. Right. Um, then there's people we call early birds, which are people who go to bed early and love to get up at the crack of dawn and get out there and start, you know, making hay or whatever they want to do. And depending on work cycles or other things, sometimes it's a bit tricky to move your chronotype around. Hmm. And typically you would do that about 15 minutes per week. So if I typically go to bed at 1 a.m. and realize that given my, I don't know, medical diagnoses and what I apparently need for sleep and need for depth of sleep, I'm suddenly made aware, oh my God, I better move this around. Again, it's about 15 minutes every four to seven days. So if I usually go to bed at one, you know, for a week is 1245 and 1230, then until you get to like 10 PM and 10 PM is the optimal time to go to sleep. Um, there's an old saying, not sure where it comes from, but it goes, uh, for every hour of sleep you get before midnight is worth two afterwards. Hmm. So by getting to sleep by 10, 10 30, your that first sleep cycle, if you really get into it, is going to really set you up for a much better uh, cascade of cycles. Yeah, I've, I've heard that, but I've often thought it was just like a I don't know, <coughs> old wives' tale or something like that. Uh, maybe, but it's also pretty medically accurate. I think you're allowed to have both. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, old wife. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> wife. Uh, yeah, so changing it can be tricky, uh, but for some people, that, that actually really does make a huge difference. Uh, you know, as people age, sleep physiology changes, you know, you might go from seven hours to like four or five in the sense of predictably getting and needing sleep, right? being able to sleep. Uh, obviously people going through menopause because of changes in uh, endocrine function and stress and things like that, sleep's going to be all over the place. Um, people who are in the process of losing a lot of weight, uh, that can really fiddle with your sleep in a pretty negative way at first. Um, one thing a lot of people ask me about is, you know, if I have trouble sleeping, when's the best time to exercise? The only way to know is to find out. Spend two or three weeks, you know, working out at 7 a.m., then two or three weeks working out around 6.30, 7 p.m., and if that doesn't feel right, then the optimal time would be about 3.34 p.m. Is there, um, with regards to sleep or otherwise, is there like a bad time to actually work out? Yeah, uh, just with, with, that, that, that's why you have to do the, that experiment to find out where your exercise adaptation um, matches your sleep adaptation. Hmm. Right. Uh, for years, I worked uh, 3 to 11 um, mm. years ago when I worked in the hotels and such, uh, 3 to 11. And uh, by the time I um, finished my shift, 1130, hop on a bike, and I'd ride home, and I would just be um, raring to go by the time I got home. I'd be so awake. Yeah, I mean, and, and with, uh, I mean, I remember being a bartender, I mean, we'd get off yeah, you know, one o'clock in the morning, or whatever, and we're all wired for sound, and we got had all the leftovers from the restaurant to pig out on. So yeah, you yep. know, it would be what we would call overpours and leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Ah, the good life. <laughs> the good life. And then you'd stagger home at three o'clock in the morning going, ow. <laughs> yeah. But those were the days where I could actually do that and then get up the next morning and still hop on a bike at 6.30 to be work yeah, at I mean, 7 o'clock, right? That, that's the amazing thing about being you know, young and all that. <laughs> not us old guys. No, no, not anymore. Not us old codgers. Yeah. Um, so a couple other quick things. You know, a lot of people make the, um, call it the misapprehension that alcohol is a really great sleep aid. And so what is it about alcohol that actually makes people sleep or is it just sort of well it's, know, it's, makes it's them unconscious it's basically i mean it's an inebriant if you drink enough of it you will just pass out right. if you drink more than enough of it you will not wake up <laughs> yeah so definitely if you're using alcohol to diminish your ability to maintain rational capacity <laughs> Uh, the only benefit that's going to help you with going to sleep is you can't organize enough of an argument to maintain any kind of like linear track. Because a lot of people, when they're lying in bed tossing and turning, they're either in a very creative problem-solving mode in, in the sense of happy, happy, I'm going to finally make my treehouse, or they're in a very process-orientated problem-solving mindset because they think they actually have to figure out tomorrow right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we all do that. But it's just to say, you know, you could be having fun in process mind or you could be having, you know, great apprehension because of deadlines, because of process thinking. Uh, but alcohol either way is going to muddle you up enough where you can't really maintain the process thinking. So you just kind of like get bored and pass out. And in fact, that's similar to some of how the more popular sleep drugs work. They're called sedative, sedative hypnotics, where they basically scrub your ability to concentrate every five seconds so you're like oh you know if i could finally get that girl's phone number and then a phone (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, (laughs) what was that i think i heard you know a creak in the basement or you know something and oh wait what was that and you know you (laughs) feel like homer simpson or something but you just keep going what that's pretty funny it's pretty funny but uh the problem with things like uh alcohol is that it interferes with your liver uh liver's ability to secrete glycogen so at three o'clock in the morning the likelihood you're going to wake up feeling hungover and awake and unaware that you're hungover and awake because you're still hungover is higher and mm-hmm. then when you do finally wake up you're waking up hypoglycemic and grumpy and you know it depends i guess on how much you would drink but uh, probably hungover and having not really slept, but feeling like, well, for about seven hours, I have no idea what happened. Right. Which is not necessarily asleep, but hmm. you have no idea what happens. And this is this is a quick, funny story, but uh, because I've been dealing with insomnia for a long time, uh, two or three times in my life, I've you know done the tap out thing and gone to the medical doctor of choice and said, dude, I could really use a sleeping pill. I'm just not sleeping at all. And sometimes that happens because of stress. And just as often in my life, it happens because I'm in a really big creative, or like I'm writing a book and I just can't not be happy thinking about what I want to write. So, so basically I take this stuff and I had this experience. I don't know. I guess this does get a bit adult, but I'll, I'll change the outcome somehow. Uh, I was using a sleeping pill. It's called Zopiclone for sleep. And it's your classical sedative hypnotic. And I was at a friend's place and um, we were having a glass of wine with dinner or whatever, um, which isn't that big of a deal. And then I had taken my little Zopiclone and I meant to basically pass out on the couch because I was crashing at a friend's place. And um, 
woke up in a very different circumstance. <laughs> With the, your underwear on a lampshade, in a strange bed, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that, that's probably a fun way to put it. And on one other occasion, similar situation, different people, I woke up the next day and I had woken up somehow in the middle of the night and made an entire feast for six people, laid out on the table, sat down, apparently made myself a plate, had some food, and went to bed. And no recollection of that in the morning? Neither of those experiences I have any memory of at all. Hmm. Apparently that's just one of the side effects of Zopiclone if you happen to have a glass of wine the same <laughs> evening. So FYI for people out there, alcohol does not help you with sleep and never mix them with uh, the modern sleeping pills because you may find yourself waking up in a situation that you have a complete blackout zero memory from and wow. i have like that those i only have those two experiences in my entire life that were like that so you're saying there's more that you just don't remember <laughs> no i think if i if i had more nights of no that's probably the only two times i've ever done that just bad in my life trying to make you sweat here yeah yeah yeah. but i'm just i just just saying like you know it's it's a very very weird thing to have mm -hmm. other people say i have this memory of this experience and you to go uh-uh wow. and them to go but but you know, <laughs> yeah. anyway, so, um, there's lots of other different kind of medications and stuff like that. But when it comes to, um, not only understanding the basic physiology of sleep, uh, it is so, so important to try and focus on natural opportunities because like I said, you know, sleep aids, even using regular melatonin can be a little bit messy. Um, I'll probably come back to that in a bit, but, uh, yeah, lots to it. Hmm. So we've been talking about, uh, I guess, issues that come up from a lack of sleep and, um, um, is this the part where you want to get into the sleep hygiene, the sort of, uh, what you can do to sort of make sure you sleep good? That seems to be a good idea. Yeah. And, and sleep hygiene isn't necessarily a, a new term, is it? I mean, it's something that I remember reading with regards to, um, uh, what did they used to call them? Uh, turn of the century stuff where it was like a, a health, uh, sanatorium or that sort of thing. People would actually go away to these health retreats. Um, and they do everything from, you know, daily colonics or enemas to, um, eating certain foods to exercise routines, all the sort of health things to sort of get people back on track is where I first heard of sleep hygiene. And because of that, I sort of discounted it as being sort of, um, old fashioned ideas that didn't really make sense, but that's not necessarily true, is it? Um, I would say there's some old fashioned ideas that we're coming to recognize make sense in ways that we didn't really have a thing to really hook it on before. Right. We haven't really got into this part of sleep hygiene or sleep physiology, but I think it's worth bringing up, um, so light enters your eyes and then, you know, passes signaling into the brain. And depending on volume of light, volume of different colors or amplitudes of light, um, your brain understands that it's a different time of day. Sure. Right. And that this is kind of a tricky thing, but, uh, but it's super cool. I think to, I don't know, in terms of fun facts you can share with your friends at a party. Um, when you place a human on the planet and it's first thing in the morning, the sunlight is coming from basically sunrise. 
So when you look at the volume of the atmosphere that that light has to basically travel through before it gets to your pupils, that's about as long as possible, right? And the amount of light that's, or the colors of light that are coming through are the most abundant across the spectrum of light because typically, statistically, uh, at night weather is a lot calmer than during the day. So the atmosphere doesn't have a lot of dust or uh, other stuff in it. On a you know clear night, you know you wake up in the morning and boom, you have the most uh, massive volume and spectrum of light possible, which is an amazing thing to do. Like if if one part of sleep hygiene is when you wake up, you just get up and go outside and you don't stare directly at the sun, but you definitely look in the direction of the sort of the brightest part of the sky to just for twenty minutes make sure that something is driving the sleep drive, and that actually goes through what's called your suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is this you know, thing that basically tells the uh, HPA axis, your pineal gland and stuff like that, that it's either time to wake up or time to sleep. So we have this master clock called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or the SEM. And it's constantly in communication with, you know, kind of the master regulating uh, glands in, in the brain. So again, here we have, you know, proto-human, first thing in the morning, diffuse but very very broad spectrum of light super healthy around noon sun's right above us again let's assume it's a clear day now the sunlight has to go through the minimum volume of actual atmosphere to get to your pupils right mm-hmm. well, hopefully that, uh, i don't know the basic imagery of that fits for people and for whatever reason that measures in your eyes as the most blue light right and I mean, I could try and get into the physics of that, but I think that would just distract people. But so the brightest midday light that tells you you're in the maximum of sleep uh, or the minimum of sleep drive and the maximum of waking drive is driven by blue frequencies of light. And then as the sun hits towards sunset, now again, the sunlight's going through a pretty maximum volume of the atmosphere, but because of traffic and wind and weather and other stuff, statistically, it's likely to be, uh, there's more, um, called debris or interference in the atmosphere. So the amount of actual light that's getting to you, uh, is more the amber kind of red spectrum. So, uh, that's, that's the essential kind of step one of sleep hygiene is, especially in the modern world is, you got to control the light coming into your your brain. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that, um, and nowadays it's hard because everyone rolls over and looks at their phone. And it's kind of weird, but why did Facebook choose that blue? Uh I have a whole bunch of BS reasons. Well, I'm just saying that just <laughs> that, that's the perfect, okay, get up and be nervous kind of blue, right? Sure. Um, anyway. Well, I mean, I, I've seen that all the time. I and mean, you know, here's my phone, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know if you can see it in the screen here if you're watching, but my face should get a whole lot brighter. But it, uh, it's a little hard to tell with the the big big lights we've got here. But yeah, but I mean, th- that, that that's idea thing. Of, of you know the amount of the amount of light that emits from your phone, you don't think it's much during the day mm-hmm. until you actually look at your phone when you wake up in the middle of the night and you turn your phone on to see what's yeah. going, and all of a sudden your whole Room lights up. That's how much light is actually burning into the back of your eyes. <laughs> or you see these two little dots on the back of the wall behind your head, like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, I'll come back to the, the light stuff in a little bit, but I just wanted to bring up that thing about the biggest governing factor of sleep. 
waking drive is light. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'll come back to that because I just want to cover. Very, very, like almost military rigid extended sleep cycle. Turns out, uh, if you go on YouTube, you can find any number of 10-hour audio tracks of rain falling on a canvas roof or a tin roof, tin roof. or the thunderstorm. For whatever reason, rain is the most effective soporific white noise. It's been medically researched and proven. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for, I mean, I usually like thunder and wind and animals. Uh, there's rain in there too. I just like the storms, but... Um, it's the same idea for some people who sleep with a fan on, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have the, that kind of white noise thing, that's going to help. But with sleep extension, you're basically, okay, I'm just stuck in bed to see if I can just get into the habit over usually the space of about three weeks of just getting bored enough to just like, okay, nine hours every night, sitting here doing nothing. Meh. And um, that also means... Uh, not reading your phone or reading nope, a book no, or no, anything no, like that, this, right? Oh, this is sleep hygiene, not <laughs> sleep hijinks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you gotta be, you gotta follow all the rules, right? So right. This, this well, is, and I just wanted to, yeah. to be clear on that because for some people, oh, I'm lying in bed. I'll do what I normally do, which is Sudoku yeah. or something, right? Yeah. So yeah, when when we get into the sleep chamber, we'll see how <laughs> that may or may not be allowed. Uh, but just for common sense sake, you know, if if you are trying to do a step one, just you know, get into the sleep chamber. We'll talk about in a sec. Right. Uh, but just force yourself to stay in bed nine, ten hours for three weeks. And and so the idea on that then is to, um, how do I say, uh, trick the body into, um, hey, um, this isn't such a bad thing after all. There's more of the mind. I mean, okay. I know for myself that um, as a person who's had insomnia, if I'm having a really hard time sleeping. I mean, it's literally like the hell of the whole thing is lying in bed knowing that tomorrow's going to be less. Yeah. You know, or worse or something. Yeah. So by habituating people to just getting comfortable or at least familiar with just being in bed and having nothing else to do, at a certain point, it's kind of like, you know, you ground your kid for being bad. They just eventually stop being bad because it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> okay i will bore you into your health <laughs> but but i mean that's just step one because usually that one gives people a chance to really get very intimate with all of the different tossings and turnings of the body and the mind hmm. you know and maybe actually really start to recognize i've got some serious thinking to do i mean i'm staying up at night thinking about my marriage my kids my job my money my taxes whatever it is your thing is and sometimes that extended sleep practice just suddenly gives you some perspective on the fact that, you know, if you're a go, go, go person and you're only giving yourself six hours a night to maybe get barely enough sleep given your, you know, think about the guys in Japan who like drink till two in the morning and then get up at seven and pretend that they're fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, so if you, when you've given yourself that chance to reflect on you and reflect on maybe why you're tossing and turning, that's another really profound benefit of that sleep 
um, yeah. extension, which is, so uh, what's going on? So this makes me think, um, does everybody need to sleep for the same amount of time? Like as, as much as you said, uh, you know, six and a half, half hours in bed at, at, at midnight up at 630, is that necessarily a bad thing? Uh, no, if if you've adapted to that and it's good for you, and there there is actually a couple of genetic tests you can get that can tell you whether or not you're one of the lucky people who can basically thrive on three sleep cycles a night, hmm. right? Which is you know five hours of sleep, right? You know maybe six, but for whatever reason, people of that gene work work out really well. Some people do better with two sleep units like they sleep they get up and read for a while and they go back to bed other people are just mono sleepers they go to sleep they stay asleep they wake up and then they're done okay so that the, there's different styles to it and i'm glad you brought that up because that that's uh good for people to be aware of that you know it, it is pretty you know there's at least three or four different probable kinds of sleeper that you could be yeah but it, and again and you're, you're talking about the quality of sleep when you're sleeping as mm -hmm. well as how you how you function during the day and what sort of physiology represent, uh, presents itself based on how does you sleep. Yeah, and again, I'm just being really clear with the sleep extension. You're basically focusing on getting bored, getting to know you, getting to know what you're really worried about, and seeing if that simple thing of just restricting distraction allows you to just basically get into a healthier mode of uh, sleep drive. Because if you have nothing else to do and you have eventually enough sleep drive, you will sleep more. Mm-hmm unless your waking drive is keeping you up because you're nervous about something and three weeks of sitting there in a dark room, you're going to figure out what you're nervous about. Right. So the next thing we usually do therapeutically is obviously to restrict, to restrict sleep. So now you're only allowed to be in bed from noon until 6 a.m. Like that's it. You're not allowed in that bed any other time of day, no matter what. Midnight till 6 a.m. Yep. Or, or 10 till 4 or whatever it would be. But sometimes in order to uh, charge up your sleep drive, you actually have to restrict your sleep. To make your body say, hey. It's the only chance you're going to get, man. Right. Instead of, hey, you got nothing else to do like for hours, so what do you want to do? Right. Right. S same trajectory in, in the sense of metabolism, completely different process. Because after three weeks of only having six hours to be horizontal, your body will be like, okay, fine, then I'll just do what you make me do. Because you know, you're, you're uh, exhausting the, the wake drive uh, in, in a way by giving it way, way more time to, to run around and forcing sleep drive to kind of do enough push-ups to, to force its way to, to balance things out. Interesting. So that that's just step one and two for everybody. If, if you're listening or you know somebody who needs some kind of talking points like what should I do work but where does this start it starts there but it also starts with the what you would call the feng shui <clears throat> of where you actually sleep sure and we call this your sacred sleep chamber you know and it should be very very dark like blackout dark I mean I know people who actually take electrical tape and put it over the little lights on their uh uh, alarm clock i'm that guy you know just because <laughs> i mean i i'm not gonna lie there with this you know right thing i've got a space heater the thing i hate about traveling is going into a hotel and having that stupid microwave oven staring at me for the whole night that's why we unplug them drives me nuts <laughs> and if they're plugged in behind a large oh, armoire yeah. <laughs> it's like socks over the top you know yeah. or something uh, over the little clock or, or the, the clock beside the, the bed, that mm -hmm. thing gets yeah, unplugged, you know, put into the bathroom. My laptop over there, because I had a guest over last night and we were listening to some music and 
when we decided to go to sleep, we turned the laptop off, but it was still plugged into the wall. So it has this blue charging light that's like the absolutely worst possible blue color. Were there airplanes circling overhead because it was like a runway light was so, so bright? Uh, we very rapidly turned the computer around to make the blue light point in another direction because we were both just laughing at the fact that whatever dumbass decided to design that computer put a big glaring <laughs> blue light right on the part that points at your face yeah. while you're falling asleep. Anyway, so uh, temperature is important. Uh, blackout is important, like zero light. Uh, some people get these little puffy, uh, like um, blindfold kind of eye covers. And I'm asked, sure, that, no, when you say blackout, you mean the whole room should be dark, right? Absolutely. Like, no, no, not, no. So I've got an eye mask, mm-hmm. but um, there's a street light somewhere on my street that I want to take a pellet gun to, um, which makes my room, you know, I could almost read. Uh, in one part of the, the corner of my room, should I be putting like a blackout curtain over top of that to make it dark? Yeah, I'll just uh, cover the mic here and see. Uh, I got you a little uh, pellet gun there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so anything uh, like that. Yeah. So lights important. Sound diminished as much as possible. And or a white noise thing going on. Um, it's so important to just make your sleep chamber about sleep. Sure, it's a bed. You can have sex on that bed, but that room is dedicated almost entirely to sleep. Yeah. So no screens, no distractions, no tablets. You got to keep your phone in another room. Uh, This is a Chinese medicine thing, but if you want to keep some fresh air moving through the house, it's ideal to keep a window open in a different room and leave the door partially open if you can, Mm -hmm. which makes the light control trickier. Uh but it has been my experience that if you're in a really cool room and there's a cool humid breeze going across your skin, uh, you can wake up basically with a kink in your neck or something like that. Hmm. There's reasons why that happens. But well, a couple of a couple of ideas there. Um, I think a lot of people sleep with their phone by their bed, and um, I've got friends who sleep with their phone beside them um, because it's their alarm clock. Right. But they leave their phone on. Or in the ready state, mm-hmm. which I can understand because none of my friends are brain surgeons. You know, they're not, or they're not emergency, um, they're not EMTs or anything like that. They're not firemen or firewomen. Right. It's not like they need to get up at a moment's notice to, to go respond to something. And yet they leave their phone on because they're afraid of, I don't know what, missing something. They're so brainwashed to that idea, yep. which I get. Um, the phone for me, airplane mode, and it's at the other end of the room. Um, and if it's plugged in and it's the alarm clock, I just turn the alarm up because the phone has that little button on the side that allows me to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I usually r- wake up when I run out of sleep anyways. I, don't, I wake up before my alarm, so I don't need to worry about that. Yeah, I, the thing that, I mean, if, I guess you'd need to really figure out your phone because there's like all the little subtle chimes and beeps and buzzes and vibrations and stuff. It's like dead off quiet. Volume's off, no vibrate, nothing. Yeah. So I would just tell, I'm just throwing that out there for the listeners that if you are going to stubbornly keep your phone, you know, in and around you, one, you're just having more Wi-Fi going through your brain, and two, yeah, uh, if it does make little noises and stuff, the whole anticipation of popularity contests or whatever else is hooked into your brain around beeping phones is going to exaggerate your insomnia. Well, I, I, I think there's something to, for me, knowing that my phone's in airplane mode or technically off, mm-hmm. um, means I don't have to think about that. I don't have to sleep in anticipation of that next text or notification coming in because I know that's not possible mm-hmm. until I turn it on again. 
Oh yeah. So there's I, I just figured out what airplane mode means. Yeah. <laughs> and for those of you watching, the room just got 40 watts brighter. <laughs> Ding! There's a light bulb over Michael's head. Yeah, I don't really get my phone. Um, but the, the, the idea around that is to sort of um, shut off in my logical brain um, what I know is possible for my phone to do when it's on, right? Mm -hmm. So if it, that's no longer there, if my phone's actually a dumb phone and it's no, it's no longer in its smart mode, right. then... I can sleep because it's like, oh, well, I give up for eight hours. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, just going back to the Wi-Fi part, some people do better if they turn the Wi-Fi in their house off while they're asleep. Uh, I can't do that because I have a teenage kid who'd kill me if they didn't have 24-7 Wi-Fi. But <laughs> uh, sometimes when he's not here, I turn it off and, you know, it's, it's a tangible difference. He'll be moving out soon. I, I know, but I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> Just think of the sleep you'll get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My kid's in college. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's driving around. <laughs> anyway. Um, so one way to really improve the whole light regulation thing, as goofy as it is, <clears throat> is to get some amber-colored construction goggles. Mm -hmm. And you just wear them around from like 7, 30, 8 o'clock on. Uh, and they'll just sort of uh, refract the blue light out of your pupils to some degree. Uh, obviously, when it comes to the use of smart TVs, computer screens, I don't know about most phones, but depends on the phone, I think. You can download either F.Lux or something called Iris, which are the two main free, mm -hmm. uh, mostly free, uh, screen dimming uh, software, which basically, and they're both trippy. Um, if I'm doing a lot of like actual work where I really need to interact with my screen, I use the f.lux because it just dims the blue light out. It's uh, on my screen. If I'm working, uh, late at night, it's like, I'm looking at something through this really severe orange filter. Yeah. It totally uh, diminishes that. These glasses, I don't know if you can see it, mm -hmm. if you're looking at the video here. Uh, are designed to minimize blue light. Mm -hmm. I've got yellow ones as well. Yeah, yeah. I just noticed that when you tilted your head. I was like, oh, they're tinted. I didn't know that. And that's on purpose. Yeah. Because I'm always staring at a screen or something for work, right? Yeah. So the F.Lux is going to basically dim, uh, and I love this part of that program because I could be sitting, you know, wherever I'm sitting in my home uh, or at work, and the screen will just change colors over about a three to five second period. And then when I look out the window, it's dusk. And it's like every day it's slightly different, but because when you type in your postal code into the program, it just knows in terms of uh, geography exactly when and when sunrise uh, and sunset is. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a very smart. Uh, Iris is a little bit more controllable, and that one when you turn it into like health sleep kind of like settings, uh, the entire screen just turns red. Hmm. Like it's literally like you know, you're, you just sit back when you're like, oh that. Kind of gives me like, <clears throat> it gives you like an, an almost kind of like uh, low grade headache from trying to overfocus your eyes. Oh, wow. And after about two minutes, your screen starts to look kind of normal because your brain has adjusted to the light right. of evening kind of thing. But it is, it's way more like kind of like in your face with, with that. So mm -hmm. we've been talking about, I guess, the light from devices. And I think it's really important uh, to note that that's probably a real major contributing factor. It's it's the it's the most I think of all the things that are accelerating due to the access of screens in every room of your house at every age. Um, it's having more impact on our behavior 
our social lives and our sleep chemistry than anything. So mm -hmm. It's kind of insane. Uh, I've read that uh, blue light um, phone devices and that sort of thing over time can actually lead to macular uh, degeneration. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, uh, which is kind of, um, I've often, one, one of the ideas that I got in the back of my head is uh, mm -hmm. computerglasses.com as a side business. There you go. <laughs> what would be interesting if we had an app would be to make uh, whatever you're watching on uh, your computer, if it's text or something else, is if there's a way to parallax the, the relative distance. Mm -hmm. So you're reading something and then all of a sudden it's going to seem like it's closer and then farther away. Yeah. Uh, that would improve human uh, eyesight because at very little time in human evolutionary history have we looked at something this far away for the same at the same distance for hours and hours all day whereas you know, when you're looking from tree to rock to food to friend to you know other furry dude or whatever's going on in the jungle i mean everything's always shifting distance right the uh the rule that i that i know that sometimes i subscribe to is 20 20 20 uh so every 20 minutes um focus your eyes for 20 seconds on something 20 feet away or more perfect Right, that's and, a, that's a great one. And um, while you're at it, stand up. <laughs> right, so physically do something different with your body, uh, which I think um, for me, anyways, whatever it is I'm working on, if it's just stuck in my head, it gives it a chance to actually sink further in, mm -hmm. uh, and like really sink into uh, a knowing part of me, as opposed to just stuck in my head. I don't know if there's any kind of doctory thing you can talk about that. Maybe that's another podcast, but. Um, Physical movement helps me learn better. Which, uh, that, and that, if you're, you're, you're watching this podcast, you'll see me twitch because mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm just taking it all in, right? I'm a fidget spinner waiting to happen over here. Most people learn better when they're laughing or moving. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so anyways, that 2020 rule um, it's a good one. Is, is really powerful if you're stuck staring at a screen for eight hours a day. Yep. Any, um, any size of screen, I should say, too. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So if we've got a sense of temperature, right? A couple of degrees lower, uh, well, white noise for sound, uh, adapting light and screens and stuff like that for um, the, the, the visual part of it. Uh, next thing is to just recognize that, uh, again, with respect to sleep, sleep drive and waking drive, especially if you're moving into like a sleep restricted phase when you're super uptight about all your sleep hygiene protocols, <clears throat> you're only giving yourself six hours to actually uh, get to sleep. Um, the next thing is, well, if I'm going to be basically sitting around for 18 hours a day waiting between my chance to sleep and my chance to, you know, sleep. Um, during that 18 hours, the more you can focus on awareness, frequency practices, stress reduction practices, um, any kind of mindfulness thing that just makes sure that um, any little triggers and uh, mishaps during the day don't build up any momentum. Hmm. So that there's actual uh, opportunity to um, press pause from all the momentum that's actually being built? Yeah, so I think we talked about this a little while ago when we talked about applied meditation, but I think with meditation, especially with respect to sleep, you have like three options, kind of like exercise. So you could meditate in the morning, 
and make sure that your day is like I'm starting my day off as the Zen master. Okay, good choice. Or you come home and, you know, have your food and clean up your house a little bit and then do your meditation so that you've cleaned off your day so that you're like, okay, this, this is me. It's all good. And now I'm going to go to sleep. And hopefully the, the monkeys in my head aren't going to be jumping up and down because I just did my meditation. Right. Option number three, and this is what I recommend people do, for a minute or two every hour or two, go into your meditation so that throughout the day, if you're getting wound up, you can unwind yourself a little bit. Two hours later, you're wound up, you can unwind a little bit. So as long as you have this awareness frequency where you check in enough times a day to make sure when you come home, you don't feel like you need to meditate to be you, then that worked really well. Hmm. And I would think that that, um, um, it sounds like just a huge st stress reduction, which kind of leads us back to the beginning of the conversation around cortisol and, mm -hmm. and all those other sort of things as well, too. Yeah, and I think if I was to get really, um, if my sleep got really bad and I felt like, oh my God, I really need to focus on this, I would probably come up with some way of communicating with most of the people close to me in my life that for whatever reason, I've decided to communicate very consciously, very patiently, that I am not interested in, you know, impatient barbs and, you know, weird cynical uh, things that could be taken personally and stuff like that. So I mean, I've, if I was really, really deep into this with respect to stress reduction, I would probably have a conversation with people that I spend most of my time with just saying, look, for the next little while, I just need to be like, super chill and make sure everyone's really clear so that I'm not lying in bed going, I wonder what they meant when they said, or, right, right. you know, that funny look across the kitchen counter when I asked for the, you know, would you please do the dishes, you know, or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, anything we can do preventatively, proactively to keep stress from building up uh, mm -hmm. is going to help the sleep drive have more room to, to build up too. Uh, there's all kinds of different metabolic instability, not just from stress, but from caffeine, sugar, alcohol, uh, undiagnosed food sensitivities, commensal infections that never really take people out, but do make your immune system more aggressive. Um, I mean, we could pop open the Pandora's box of all the subtle psychological reasons why people can carry grudges or uh, maintain a pretty self-loathing kind of stance in, in the world just because it's familiar and... It's kind of hard to sleep when you spend most of your time literally hitting yourself over the head with a stick of judgment and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, one of the weirder things I've come across researching sleep is um, positioning your biggest social activities away from your sleep. Um, meaning like... Don't be, don't be busy with your mind uh, later in the day? Or uh, well, more like don't decide to have a bunch of friends over to play cards at 9 p.m. and then expect to go to sleep at 11 and actually sleep. Because hmm. primates as very social um, integration-driven kind of mammals, our social time is a time of profound, subtle uh, connection and association and mild paranoia about what could go wrong. Or what did those two people say to each other? And what does that mean about me? And, you know, imagine you're in a relationship with somebody and you're at a dinner party and for whatever reason, they're flirting with the person at the other end of the table. And it's just, they're having that kind of a day. And now you're going to go and lie in bed thinking about all the vicissitudes of fate around partners who 
don't notice you or don't care or, you know, the places we can go with. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, you could just drive home with your partner in the car and say, so it looks like you and Dave are hitting it off. (laughs) And then just have that conversation so you could sleep. Dave's a nice guy. Yeah, of course he is. (laughs) Just happened to notice though. (laughs) But uh, those kind of things. I mean, I'm picking, cherry picking a really bad example, but... um, and they, they even actually in the research on sleep hygiene, if you're going to watch a show, it's better to watch like a documentary about animals than it is about something that has to do with a lot of human dynamic. Because the survival primate, Mary the monkey voice in our head, who wants to make sure we're always a cool, you know, part of the, the tribe, will naturally be running through their minds on a very subtle subconscious level. Everything that they picked up on a social cueing level that makes them emotionally more intelligent and safe. Hmm. So they, I mean, this is literally in the literature. Wow. If you're going to watch a show, make sure it's pretty solo, not a lot of conversation, not a lot of social dynamic, because, I don't know, this is a weird image, but we probably have all seen, you know, you take your dog to the park, you play Frisbee, you come home, the dog is happy, has a little snack, lies on the floor, and 15 minutes later is doing some kind of dog mamba herky jerky you know <laughs> kung fu thing on the floor while it's sleeping um fundamentally on a neurological level burning in the neural pathways of how to turn left and right better right because that's why it's legs are kicking is that it's remembering maybe when it got banged in the side of the face by the frisbee and was like oh what would i what should i have done then or how i would have you know zigged or zagged to to do better uh, so that's what, that's what's going on for for those animals, and those animals are driven, um, obviously, around kinesthetic survival much more than peer bonding. Whereas primates, you know, as long as we can manipulate our peeps, we're probably going to be okay. <laughs> right. We don't have to worry about zigzagging around. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, that's a bit of a cynical way to put it, but I just think it's one of those interesting things around um, social connection is a hugely uh, good thing for our species it's just recognizing that you know keeping it a couple hours away from your your sleep is is more effective than than trying to like pack it in for that that, that last five minutes and then try and sleep mm-hmm. I've, I've got a friend who's got a part of his uh he doesn't use the word sleep hygiene but mm-hmm. his idea is um devices go off at nine o'clock 9 p.m yep uh so don't text me after 9 p.m because i'm not going to get it at least until eight o'clock the next morning and he's in bed by 10, 10.30, and he mm-hmm. gets up at 7. Yeah. So his his routine is devices off an hour before bed, and devices don't go on until an hour after I get up. Yeah, I wish that I had that kind of control over my stuff. Maybe I will someday. Yeah. But that, that's a, that's definitely, I would put that on the list of smart. That, that, that's something to um, um, ascribe to or, or, or try to attain. But I think it's, uh, for him, it's really good because he's um, super driven. And uh, if you present him with a problem, you know, it's not over until it's done and fixed mm-hmm. and posted in 15 different places and all that <laughs> sort of thing, right? So for him to get that uh, text, say, at like 9.01, he wouldn't be in bed till 12.30. Yeah. Well, which doesn't work for him because he's oh. so driven during the day. He needs all of the gas in the tank that he could possibly get, right? Yeah. And I mean, that that's where sleep hygiene actually really... Is. I don't know, presents itself as the word hygiene. Like, th- mm-hmm. that's that's our job. <laughs> yeah. So a couple other things that are kind of just broad strokes. Um, obviously, the more nutrient-dense your diet is, 
the more nutrients you're getting per calorie per meal than just calories, you know, in the sense of empty things like pasta and bread and stuff. So by having a nutrient dense diet, you're going to have all the cofactors to build in neurotransmitters to make the brain chemicals you need to have a good brain. Um, at the same time, by changing your diet away from the sort of standard American puffed everything and, you know, ground up grain everything and processed everything and fried everything and packaged everything. And corn everything. Yeah, high fructose corn syrup and other fun things you can do to damage every part of you. Um, obviously, by having more nutrient-dense uh, fuel in your body, not only are you going to be able to repair any kind of damage quicker, the likelihood that your microbiome or all the happy bugs in your tummy uh, that it actually turns out make most of your serotonin, 60% of your melatonin, you know, and all this other stuff, without that engine in your GI tract building neurotransmitters for sleep, you could have the best sleep hygiene in the world. You could be trying to pay off your sleep drive, you know, some backsheesh, you know, at two in the morning in the back alley. And it's not gonna make a difference because <clears throat> you can't produce the right kind of neurotransmitters because your guts are all messed up. Right. Right. So when it comes to the idea of supplements for sleep, I think step one is, you know, heal your gut, heal your life. I mean, we did a whole podcast just on that, you know, affirmation right there. Because mm-hmm. uh, again, that's the machinery of neurotransmitters. You kind of have to have them to see anything else go on. Sure. Uh, uh, immune regulation is a really big thing because uh, a lot of this is due to just uh, low-grade latent inflammation in the body, but especially in the brain. Um, you know, so there's like vitamin D and, uh, chaga tea and all kinds of other, uh, immune modulators that are uh, just going to slow down the rate at which you produce inflammation, which it's, it's not technically an anti-inflammatory, uh, but it would be a good idea when it comes to actually using anti-inflammatories for the brain for sleep. There's a uh, resveratrol really unique and potent in one way. Uh, Alpha-lipoic acid, uh, unique in the sense that it can help transfer more neurotransmitter tissue across the blood-brain barrier as an anti-inflammatory, which is pretty trippy. Um, Lots of other plant-based anti-inflammatories that are, uh, in general, just good for people. Uh, SAMe comes to mind, specifically around uh, neurological inflammation as well. Uh, cannabis, obviously the CBD, the stuff that doesn't make people high, it's a great, uh, anti-inflammatory, anti-anxiety, muscle relaxant, but an immune modulator specifically, uh, in the brain, especially when it's with vitamin D and the ALA, alpha lipoic acid. So that combination is pretty cool. And there's a podcast about that. And there's a whole podcast about that too. Yeah. Of ours. It's almost like you're running down the list of all the different podcasts that we've done oh, in order well, to fall asleep. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there, that'd be one way to do it. Um, let's see, obviously using cannabis with respect to, uh, kind of the more indica kush purpley sides of, uh, what's available, uh, for either smokable or ingestible concentrates, uh, they would be good. Uh, it either by itself or with cannabis, things like passion flower, lemon balm and hops, uh, all as just regular sleep aid plants. They actually have the same entourage terpenes as your indica kind of cannabis uh, in general, uh, allowing for uh, deeper sleep overall with less of the hangover because a lot of people use THC for sleep. You know, they just tend to overdo the drug my brain thing and then they wake up 
feeling like a drug brain. So mm-hmm. balancing that out. Uh, depending on, I think during the day, like what the biggest perturbations are, like if it's more depressive things, uh, St. John's wort, more anxious things like L-theanine, GABA, just to make sure that through your day, you can systemically and consistently modify your state towards restful, uh, uh, can, you know, just a, a bit of self-control in that way. Cause I think that's just an inst- instinctual thing, you know, although I'm sure we might be walking around with a Ziploc bag full of fun, chewy tablets in our pocket during the day. Um, at least by the end of the day, you can look back going, wow, that was a busy day. And I managed to not get completely stressed out, completely wound up, completely dejected or uh, disappointed in some way. Um, just cause I was taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anything that has to do with inducing hypnagogic states, like acupuncture, craniosacral massage, float tanks, those are, I mean, what's the statistic? One good hour of a float is good four hour, as good as four hours of deep sleep. Wow. Right. So lots and lots of adjunctive therapies, but, and I'm sure I could go on for another hour about all the tricky little hacks that are out there. But the thing I think I really want to just, if I was to try and impress people with a point is statistically sleep hygiene, proper sleep management, sleep assessment, um, having an ally in some kind of uh, health field that is more about prevention and, and modulating an unstable metabolism instead of just bonking the symptoms. If you're trying to like start somewhere, that would be a great place to start. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, if subjectively you feel like sleep is just one of those things, start with that and everything else and find someone to work with who can really be a good detective. Because if you can sleep the why, or pardon me, if you can fix the why you're not sleeping, you're going to fix the why of everything else that's going on on a subtle chronic immune and epigenetic level that will eventually turn into something dangerous. Mm. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's just one of the, the foundational things to health is to sleep, right? And sleep well. So um, it only makes sense that uh, taking care of that's going to take care of everything else. Yeah, and some of us just have a block, you know. I mean, oh, the sleep, the little death, the loss of life, the mm. lack of experiences and joy and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, well, maybe. Maybe with some good organized sleep, you enjoy those that <laughs> are 16 hours way, way more. <laughs> yeah, sure. And remember them way, way more and all that. All that. All that for sure. Um, I'm looking at the clock and we're at about 1.40 in here. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> so much for a concise uh, episode on sleep here. But um, there was one thing that you said you might want to come back to, and I'm not sure if you want to pick this up just because of the time. Melatonin. Oh, yeah, right. Thanks. So very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't feel like an hour and 40 minutes. Because it's a very relaxing thing to do is to talk about sleep. Well, I think we're also just habituated from the last epic episode. So and it's these blue lights that we're staring epic, at. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay. I'm so awake. I'm going to get a clock. <laughs> okay. Anyway, yeah. So melatonin, um, most melatonin you get over the counter is just pure melatonin. And it's like three, five, ten milligrams. Uh, a lot of people start with three very quickly, end up at five, then end up at ten. And if you were to imagine it, you're basically taking like a fist of melatonin and punching yourself right in the pineal gland, screwing with the whole interaction between the SEM, the super 
chiasmatic uh, nucleus and those master regulating glands and, and everything else because there's no way for your body to endogenously produce that many milligrams of that kind of a neurotransmitter or hormone depending on how you look at it in that period of time hmm. so inevitably you're going to build up a resistance and downstream <clears throat> melatonin may or may not be able to do a lot of its other jobs right because you know you're overdoing it a little bit so the ideal thing with melatonin is to one make sure it's timed release and two mix it with as many plant alkaloids that are known to induce sleep drive so again passion flower hops lemon balm oat straw uh, obviously there's a bunch of chinese herbs if you know chinese herbs but i would just start speaking chinese so that's not going to help anybody <laughs> <laughs> might put people to sleep yeah there you go <laughs> Ow. it's the end of the podcast i can make bad jokes can i yeah pretty much <clears throat> So, uh, yeah, that, that basically just covers it. And with respect to, to the kind of title, you know, of the, of the episode, with respect to insomnia, uh, how we age, and obviously autoimmune disease, uh, that's, that's something that I really, really just want to make sure it's reiterated that although we're speaking about the mechanics of sleep, the physiology, and some of the hacks that people, you know, get some results with nowadays, you're really big big reason for getting into this would be because you are dealing with an autoimmune condition. Mm -hmm. uh, you are concerned about, um, you know, more long-term complex health outcomes and stuff like that. Uh, and are obviously aging, unfortunately, rapidly. Because I can't think of anything that's going to age people rapidly than like severe debilitating insomnia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I feel for people who have that sort of condition. I know myself if i ever have a crappy sleep what i'm like during the day i can't imagine being like that all the time yeah it's it's a it can get pretty run up i've had times in my life where it was yeah it was the song the rest of my life was marching to hmm. wow um let's wrap it up there okay yeah um this has been episode 42 of the fusion health radio podcast this is your cue oh we're calling it insomnia, aging, and autoimmune disease. There we go. Maybe we'll get that a little bit more practiced and polished for the next one. <laughs> um, I'll just put like a little sticky note to my head. Although now we're on video, people would see it, but it would, it would make for some jokes. I'll just put it off, off camera right here. People can't see my hand right there. Yeah. Uh, so this has been a podcast with uh, myself, Anthony Santa, in studio with Dr. Michael Smith. Um, if you like what you heard today, uh, you have any more questions, ideas, concerns, please do reach out. Uh, you can reach Michael and I both. Uh, medical related questions go to him anything else you can ask me uh, through our Facebook page Fusion Health Radio uh, look for us there uh, we're all over the internet you can just google us uh, Stitcher Podbean um, uh, I think Intune um, Mixcloud all over the place wow yeah it's uh, and of course Apple uh, for those uh, if you who like to get your podcasts there uh, one of the things that Michael and I are working on is a Patreon account uh, that's pretty big for us to actually be asking for money. Gulp. Uh, but that's something that uh, we'd like to do is uh, ask for your support um, because we love what we do and uh, we think you love what we do. So um, help us do it that much better. Um, do we have a basic sort uh, of tier of reward things? We there's want to a Patreon or? page that exists right now, okay. patreon.com slash Fusion Health Radio. There oh. are some tiers there. Uh, we need to work at the back end of that. 
Um, but at the very least, you can take a look and you can bookmark it. Um, and by the time you actually hear this podcast and it actually gets put out, um, it should all be done. And I'm going to... Oh, there's some wood. <laughs> instead, <laughs> of knock, head, you <laughs> instead of knocking myself in the head. Um, so yeah, uh, please do uh, share and support today with your... You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.